Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. As the ancient Chinese curse goes, may you live in interesting times. And indeed, uh, they do not get much more interesting, or we're hoping they don't get any more interesting or infuriating or whatever you want to call it as they currently are. But um, be that as it may, Perswadi was able to snag a very elusive guest this week for an interesting interview that you are not going to want to miss coming up. Um, as mentioned, you are listening to The Poker Zoo. This episode, as well as all the other Poker Zoo episodes, are available at persuadio.nl. Simply do a search for The Poker Zoo online. And uh, also, while you're on the website, top right menu choice is the webinar Scientific Poker Strategy. Click on that link and you can see details to uh, the webinar, how to purchase, all the download files that you will receive. As everyone has said, it uh, presents a great value if you're a serious poker player. I am one of your hosts, Dean Martin, and this is Persuadio with this week's interview. Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. This week we have a simply extraordinary guest. We're going to find out if he plays any poker these days, but either way, uh, he's left a huge mark on the game with, among other things, his poker book, Easy Game. Hello, Andrew Seidman. Hey, Chris. How's it going? It's going pretty well, all things considered, trapped indoors. How are you taking the, the whole crisis? Honestly, I've been uh, kind of enjoying it. Um, not, not from the, you know, like global <laughs> catastrophe perspective, but from the quarantine perspective, I, I'm a chronic traveler. I have a hard time saying no to things. And so, uh, I've always been complaining for like years, like, ah, oh, I should really stop traveling and like focus on getting some work done and, and, uh, get healthy and all those things. And so now it's been kind of forced into my hands and, uh, I kind of like it. Well, that's awesome. You're, you're no nihilist. Uh, what have you, where have you been traveling recently? Uh, tell tell the listeners what the good life is all about. Let's see. I mean, this past year, I had an awesome trip uh, out to Mexico City um, with a bunch of other poker players, actually, that I'm, I'm good friends with and had a blast down there. Um, do a lot of travel around the U.S., um, trying to think. Uh, and I've got a, I have family up in the Seattle area. Actually, I saw that you're in Kirk, uh, Kirkland. And um, have a bunch of family up in that area, and so I've been going up there a lot. My girlfriend's family's from there, so was up in Seattle a bunch, uh, Vegas fair amount, um, and then honestly just like kind of wherever, wherever there seems to be a scene. I'm a big skier, and so I, last year I went to ski mm. in Japan. I spent a bunch of time in Japan skiing, um, and then this season been up in Tahoe a bunch, or was up there before the uh, before they closed everything. So yeah, I mean. Pretty, I would say, pretty unusual for me to have two weekends in a row where I was in the same state, but uh, I've been enjoying my my forced retirement from traveling. Nice. What do you do to keep busy? So I started a a marketing agency with some friends of mine that I grew up with, like eight or nine years ago. Kind of uh, like after Black Friday was still playing poker, but was kind of viewed it as maybe like a reasonable sign to look at other things. I had a bunch of, I was actually in a very unique situation in Black Friday where I had a bunch of money that got stuck um, in limbo for like five years. Um, because basically I had gone, I had initiated a very large withdrawal via wire that had gotten lost. Uh, 
and it never arrived. And then so I went to Canada and relocated and and like opened up my accounts, but the wires will never arrive. So that wire basically took like five years to get resolved with me calling the Garden City group like every two weeks um, <laughs> trying to uh, trying to get it fixed. So I basically viewed it as like kind of a, a, a good dovetail to uh, sort of mix poker with business. Um, I started playing poker like part time, sort of doing business part time. Uh, and then sort of over the course of the last, I don't know, maybe like four years or so, the business really uh, became uh, quite successful. And from there, um, you know, started doing that most of the time uh, and then playing poker more whenever it fits kind of like the magic combo of fun and profitable. So I usually go play the World Series. I'll go play like a handful of uh, WPT events. Um, you know, if I can make it down to LAPC, I always enjoy LAPC. Uh, and then whatever kind of like, cash games are convenient around but hasn't been like a huge focus for a little while that's nice that sounds really good do you get online ever i have some money online um i can't say on which sites i may or may not be playing when i do play but not a ton i mean most of the time i'm, I'm actually would prefer to like just buy pieces of people that are like less rusty and um you know sharper players than i am at the moment you know it's been a decade since you, I guess, were involved in publishing your book and at the height of your, your playing time. Uh, what, what do you think of it all looking back? I mean, uh, extremely surreal. Like, I was just, um, there's a program that's uh, donating laptops to underprivileged people right now who need to basically transition their schooling to virtual. So I, like, dusted off my old laptop that I used to play poker in. And... Um, I was talking about like talking about with my girlfriend as we were getting ready to donate it, and uh, like the the memories that I have of this laptop are like totally insane. Like I remember playing twenty five fifty heads up uh, against a player named Run It Trim on full tilts, and we were like four tabling, and I had run up a stack of like seventeen or eighteen k on one of the tables, but he had me covered on that table. We've been playing for a while. I was in the airport. I'm in Boston Logan Airport, and um, like they're calling like, you know, group five, group six, whatever, like last call. And then I get aces in against his Kings and get busted for like, you know, 37, 38 K pot, something like that. <laughs> Just like close my laptop and like, you know, go get on my plane and get ready to sit for like five hours. And it's just, you look back on it, it's just like, wow, it's really as like a 19 year old or whatever, however old I, I was at that time, it was like super formative time in your life. So like, I think it's, it was obviously very, I was very blessed in that I was given a degree of freedom that um, most people don't get to have. And I got to explore, got to travel, got to do a lot of things that I, you know, a lot of people would, would like to do in their lives. I got to do like a ton of them before I turned 22 years old. I think it has like a major effect on the brain and the way you process swings. But on the whole, I think it's been really good for me. Like in business, just being able to have a clear perspective on variance, on um, like what expected value should really be like keeping a cool head when things go wrong or people screw up or something like that. Yeah, I would say I'm I'm really grateful that I had the experience. And honestly, I think poker in some sense or another will always be a part of my life. Like there, I definitely have daydreams and miss it. And I, I hang out with a ton of poker players still, or at least uh, I guess a lot of them are, are now like sort of like I am, like mostly former poker players. But I still spend a lot of time with a few like really elite pros. And uh, yeah, part of it, you know, you, you jones for it sometimes. So I think poker will always be a part of it. 
That's really cool. Can I pressure you for an example of, of where the poker experience and the understanding of variance and expected value has specifically helped you out in your business? I mean, you are successful. Yeah. People want to hear that. Yeah. I mean, like a really straightforward and easy one might be um, like sales, right? Like like you have a sales team or a salesperson who's out there trying to like close sales and sometimes they're just going to run bad. Um, but they'll be good. And so like you actually have to get to what defines a good process, the same as you might in a poker hand. Like, you know, somebody might have a good process and get whacked for like months, but you just know they're a good player because you can see their thought processes and the way they talk about it is good. And the reverse is also totally true. You can find a salesperson who seems to be just like lights out, but they really suck. They're just getting super lucky. And if a better salesperson was talking to the same people, they might close twice as much money. So there's uh there's that it's kind of like a very simple one. But I think even like the the depth of understanding variance and expected value is it goes like way beyond that. So like simply like let's say you're gonna hire someone uh who's gonna work at your company. Well, like X percentage of the time that hire's just not gonna work out. And like even if you had like ideal or perfect processes, maybe you start off with a crappy process and you're like at like 30% likely to work out. And then when you get great at hiring and you have like a really good uh, practice in place, maybe you get up to like 60 or 70% likely to work out. It's the same thing as like, you know, playing poker. Like if you're great, you might have like 60%, maybe 70% in a super soft game, like, like winning sessions. You know what I mean? But like you just get used to it. You like go to work and you're like, oh yeah. I lost today. Like, it's not my fault. It's not a big deal. Like I can make it better, but it's also just like a thing that's going to happen. And so when you have that kind of understanding, it helps with the, the financial modeling. It helps with like the, uh, the way you think about your own, you know, quality and things like that. So, um, so yeah, I hope that's a reasonable example. No, that's, that's very good. I'm wondering though, how, you know, it sounds like you've had a very good experience and, and continue to benefit from it. How do you think, your generation or maybe even other generations have done in the transition from poker into, you know, so-called real life? Um, I don't know if I'm the best person to ask about this because like the, the people that I am really close with in the poker world um, were like in the top, 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 like 0.001% of successful poker players. And so a lot of them, if they decided they didn't want to play much poker anymore, it was like, well, I mean, I could just like sit here with millions of dollars and like figure out what I want to do next kind of thing. And so, um, which is not a knock against them at all. Like, I think actually it's fun or it's funny to me. Like I see a lot of similarities between people who are like, don't have a ton of previous success and are like struggling to figure out what they want to do in their life. And people who have like made tons playing poker and still trying to figure out what they want to do with their life. And so it's, uh, I think it's like more of a human or universal problem. I think, uh, you know, I think the two degree poker players are tend to be very creative problem solvers. And so I used to joke about presenting myself with a resume as like a high speed risk manager, like risk analyst, <laughs> like um, which in a sense is true. Like you're doing 20 tables at once and analyzing risk in these complex situations. Um, and so I actually know a lot of people who transitioned successfully into finance. There were a lot of corollaries there. Um, but I think... Uh, the most common pitfall that I hear from people is like, they just feel like their skills aren't transferable, but like being smart is transferable. And so, you know, you're obviously not going to apply to a, a poker playing position, but you might be able to demonstrate 
that you can like take a problem and go from zero to solving it like on your own. Like I think most poker players in the internet age are were like very self-starters. Uh, they like went on forums like I did and like learned how to you know learn from books that they found on the internet and stuff like that. So I think there is a lot of um, like if somebody came to me and was like obviously I'm biased. But if someone was like I'm a poker player and I want to get a job, I'm usually like more inclined to think that they're probably a little sharper than the other people that I talk to. Nice. That, that's a good transition as well. How did you learn to play poker? What led you to becoming an expert, essentially? So this is always really funny to me because a ton of people that got great at poker were just naturals, right? They just like sat down. There's like amazing story. I don't know if you know who like Foxwood Fiends or Ariel Schneller is, but like he literally just like took like $500 to the Foxwoods Casino when he was underage and then just gambled all night and like walked home with like 50 or like took a limo home with 50 grand <laughs> to, took the bus out there, took a limo home and like just never looked back. And I was not that way. I, I played micro stakes. I, I was a losing like home game, $20 buy-in cash game player in high school. Uh, I went to college and continued being a loser at, in my like dorm room freshman game which actually ended up featuring multiple like future high stakes studs, by the way, which is kind of hilarious. But um, I then I played, I was playing online. I played like uh, limit, like small stakes limit. And I was a loser there. And then it really over the course of like a year and a half of playing small stakes, no limit, like 10, 10 cent, 25 cent, no limit. Uh, I was still like roughly a loser. Um, the major turning points for me were uh, discovering um, two plus two which was in, it was listed, there was an article in Sports Illustrated about Vanessa Selbst and Jason Strasser and a few other people that, you know, I was like a you know, random 18 year old and I'm reading about these millionaires who are like killing it in online poker. And then just like briefly footnotes, like, and they learn on 2plus2.com. So I went to 2plus2.com and got totally immersed. I started asking questions of all these people who at the time were all just like screen names, um, you know, so like, you, if you were lucky enough that like flawless victory would write LOL at your post, like you could learn a lot from that LOL, like some of the most informative LOLs you'll ever get. And I was very persistent in interrogating or questioning anybody who was better than me and was willing to take the time to answer my questions. And so if it didn't make sense to me, I just like kept on grinding it. Uh, on those forums, and then um, and then one day I just had like a big revelation, which was that they always have it. <laughs> and, um, and then when I realized that they always have it, and I decided I was just going to start folding to whenever they had it, whenever they raised, I found that poker was very easy. And basically, they always it turns out that they always had it until like five ten online at that time. And so I pretty much just cruised without ever having to learn any real critical skills until I reached 510. Um, at that point, you can make some serious money. And, um, and then at that point, I think I, uh, I was starting to take, you know, the learning process really seriously. I was starting to like ideate. I was doing a lot of coaching at that time. And so I started to like develop the skills more. And then that helped me like get up to the next level. Long-winded answer, I know. No, that's good. They all, they all, they still always have it. Well, at least sometimes. They sometimes <laughs> always have they, it. Let's they, put it. They usually have it. <laughs> but um, but that brings us, you know, that that makes me ask though. That was then. This is now. You still play? Like, 
It must, I'd be interested in hearing what the poker world looks through, looks at through your lens. What, what's going on now? From my perspective, the live game scenes at all but very high stakes seem to be roughly the same. Um, the pros are better than they were, but like most of the game is going to be revolving around maximizing value against weaker players um, and uh, being able to um, adapt your game based on like the, the table dynamic and the player type and stuff like that. So I think like I would feel pretty comfortable and fine like going to sit down in like a 510 or 1020 game live um, in Vegas if those were running or something like that. I think at the very high levels and really like dispersed down as well, the technologies that are available for studying are like way beyond anything that we had when I was coming up and playing a lot. Um, so solvers and AI machines um, and the ability to grind scenarios quickly and memorize uh, balance and like have a deep mathematical understanding of what balance really means. Like, I don't know if you ever played chess, but like if you if you play chess, there's like a little um, with an engine, there's like a little evaluator that's like, OK, black is like plus one here. Like, oh, now that black screwed up, now white is like plus 1.6 and stuff like that. The poker, like good poker solvers can do this now where they're just like, oh, like this is a 0.3 big blind mistake. That's like a point, like seven big blind, big blind win. And so that type of evaluation and technology just didn't exist uh, and I think has made it um, very uh, – has made like the, the quality of play, especially for like the serious online grinder, like very high. Um, I was astonished several years ago at how solid the level of play was even at like mid and lower stakes games when I was like – you know, still coaching people and things like that. Uh, and so, um, my basic philosophy now is that the games are still very beatable, um, at smaller stakes. They're super beatable live. Like if you wanted to start from scratch and be a pro poker player, you wouldn't want to do it online. You'd want to do it live. Also like the rake structures and the infrastructure supporting online poker kind of sucks now. Um, so like in general, your best bet, if you wanted to play poker would be to do it in a casino, but that there are like if you want to like really understand what like the best players are doing the the tools available are insane uh and like people are just doing a lot of studying uh we did you know we did a lot of like conversing or a lot of like uh arguing about you know why should you do this or why should you, you do that but they were all kind of couched in this subjective analysis perspective but now it's like no, 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 you should check there. Like the computer sees, thinks it's a pure check. Like it doesn't matter what you think, like you're wrong. The computer wants you to check. So I think like that, that kind of the infiltration of balance into like online poker has made it uh, really, really challenging to beat it where it used to be more of an exploitative game. So you still hang around with players who are probably professionally involved with the game, right? Yes. What, what are they saying to you about the future of the game given all these constraints on it. Yeah. I mean, again, like it's, I'm, I might be the wrong person to ask about this because like a, the people that I'm tend to be hanging out with are like unicorns in a sense. Um, <laughs> but I know that at the very highest stakes, like there's always the concern that like the people that drive those games could just stop coming. Um, there's very few people that are supporting like the really high stakes, um, uh, like super high roller level games and those like if those people just stopped coming if they lost too much money if something else happened like uh, 
those could kind of uh, dry up. And so there's that that concern for them at the top. But again, I think that's like a very like first world problem, like not the concern that most people have. Um, I My thought is like, I think that poker has become like a science for um, the serious player now. And so one of the, um, like one of the real, uh, problems that I can see is that I don't, I don't really f- foresee any way that online poker could ever go back to the way that it was for like a bunch of reasons. But one of them is I mean, obviously there's like legal reasons and things like that, like in the United States that it isn't. But the if you think about like how good people are on a scale of one to 10 and like the bigger the gap between two players on that scale, like the faster the money is going to transfer from the weaker player to the stronger player. When I was playing like on a scale of one to 10, I was probably like a three or a four on the overall scale where like the the computer master is like a 10 out of 10. But it just so happened that everyone else who was playing was like a one or a two. And so like I could just kind of whack them and keep going. Um, but there was like not that big of a disparity. Well, like the bad players are still going to be ones and twos, but now your good players are like sevens, eights and nines. And so I'm envisioning if it ever were to be legalized again, just this massive immediate transfer of wealth from the weaker (laughs) players to like the strong players who just know exactly what they have, who are like balanced completely, like cannot be beaten or like very difficult to beat them. And so I think, uh, I just can't perceive that it's ever going to go back to the way it was, but I think live casinos will always be a thing. And I think that there will always be some, there will always be games in some form or another that, some format or another that circle around recreational players who are trying to lose money. Um, I just don't think it's like scalable the way that it was once upon a time. For sure. So as you said, the lower stakes games, you know, the live games are still viable and you wrote easy game, which to me um, is still highly applicable because it's still, it's still 2011 out there. Um, How, Tell, tell us about the creation of this book and, and maybe how it's treated you over the years. It's, is it still selling? Uh, yeah, um, it, I, it surprises me that it still sells a little bit. You know, I, I pretty much like stopped working on revisions or on, you know, new content for it like many years ago. And um, yeah, it still sells, sells a handful of copies um, every month, which is, I guess, awesome. Like, I'm glad people are still finding value from it. The book itself was um i was i was coaching a lot of people at that point like i think that in that era you know you kind of publicly in in the forums especially like rise from micro stakes to high stakes and you you know i was prolifically writing in the forums like a lot of people were asking me for coaching and i like money and i like poker and talking about poker's fun so i was like this seems like a cool way to, to make some additional cash and talk about poker. Um, so I was doing this and I was just noticing that like the people I was coaching, I was just saying like the same things over and over to them, like over and over again to the point where it was like, so it was so like rehearsed. I'd be like, Oh, you checked there. Or like you bet with your Kings on your ACE high board here. Like, this is like a thing that you don't understand is like how if you make him fold, he folds correctly. And like, you never actually make any theoretic, make him make any theoretic mistakes. So like, even though it feels good to win the pot, like you're actually losing a little bit of money every time you make this bet. So I would have these little kind of like conversations that I had started to have like over and over again for years. And one time I was on an airplane and this was, it's going to date me, but this is before Wi-Fi on airplanes. 
And I just decided to write down all of the like prepared lectures that I had been giving, just see if I could just put them like all down on paper and what would happen. And like, I pretty much like blacked out and then like blacked back in again. And I had like, you know, maybe like two thirds of the book done. Um, and so at that point I was like, Oh, this actually might be like kind of valuable content. And then kind of, I was thinking what to do with it. And then, uh, Cole South and tree when released their like 5k or 2k or whatever it was, let there be range book. And I was like, wow, there might be like a market for this kind of thing. Um, but I also knew that the way that I like to talk about or think about poker was about like the mental framework and less about the, the math, which at the time I think was really helpful and probably still is helpful for people trying to get like an understanding of like the, the basis of the math. Nowadays, I think like the math is just, it's, it's unavoidable and you kind of need to include it. Um, but the purpose of that book was to get people to like think about how to think and so I was, yeah, I think it was, um, it kind of just flowed out naturally. Um, and then, uh, and then was like pretty well received. So people were you know, pretty nice to me about it. And actually like I sold a lot of, made a lot of money from it at the beginning, um, lost most of that money playing jungle man heads up, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it was just like, I don't know. It was, um, it was a cool experience. I still get, you know, people still send me notes about it or obviously like, you know, this podcast, for example, like it still has made a mark, uh, in the poker world, which I think is awesome. Let's, let's divert. People will probably want to hear a little bit about playing jungle man heads up. Why did you lose? Why, what makes him good? Why was that tough? <laughs> you gotta understand, first of all, the jungle man is like, like arguably the greatest heads up, no limit player of all time. He is, he's on like some other level stuff and he like has a, a incredibly deep understanding of balance. He has like an incredibly, um, he's just got like a very unique mind. I don't know if you've ever like watched any video of jungle play before, but like, he's totally crazy. Um, but he's, uh, he's a special talent. And actually when I went to sit down, so I, I, I made like kind of like a classic ego based mistake in, mm -hmm. uh, in this time, which was like, I, uh, there's like a very clear pecking order in let's say like 10, 20 and 25, 50, uh, starting of games, which is basically like, you know, if I'm sitting there and Ike Haxton comes to sit with me, like I'm going to sit out because like, I, I don't think I'm better than Ike. And if I'm sitting at, a, or if someone else is sitting at a table and I go sit with them, like they would sit out cause they didn't want to play me one-on-one -on -one to try to start these games. And I, I was like, you know, towards the top of that hierarchy, like someone like Ike was rarely playing as low as 10, 20, or 25, 50. And so like, it wasn't, uh, there weren't very many people that I was afraid of. Then I made the, uh, then I made the leap to say that like, well, if no one wants to play me at 10, 20 or 25, 50, it's probably because like, I'm so good at poker that like i can leave my like, kind of main stomping ground which was six max and some full ring and like i'll just go play heads up even though i'd never like played heads up it was never my game <laughs> and so i just like walked into the greatest heads up player of all time and he literally in chat i remember he was just like hey uh nobody really plays me um are you sure you want to like it's i'm pretty good <laughs> <laughs> and i was just like bring it on and then i got whacked um but uh but yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's like I was 20 years old. Like when you're 20 years old, you have a ton of money 
and you've never you haven't basically had a losing month in like two years or something insane you think pretty highly of your ability and in retrospect now that i know how variance goes like i have no idea like how good exactly i was like i'm sure it's very very likely i was like a winning player but like how winning like maybe i was on a massive heater for like a year or maybe i was just like great and then i went on a massive downer when i played jungle man like it's it's you can play these mind games forever but uh the moral of the story was i think that i was a pretty big dog to jungle and heads up and he proved it now he said on the air he is the math is it really a math issue or what else is going on there um so on like a on a very fundamental level, like from game theory level, like any game is the math. And so it doesn't matter how great you are at reading a person if the person is a robot who just makes the correct like the computer move every time. Like you can't beat them by definition. The best you could ever hope to do is tie them, which is like basically the, you know, your your tic-tac-toe example. Like you know, if you're playing against the the math, the computer, like they will never lose that tic-tac-toe, but like you could if you did something stupid. So I think in in terms of at the level that jungle is playing and a lot of these guys are playing, like the the ratio of how much of it is the math or like knowing the math or what to do versus like knowing the person um, is uh, it becomes more oriented towards math. But I will say that, like, I don't think that, especially in live poker, you can ever really take the uh, human element out of it. And so I think, like, a lot of the very best players in the world are, like, incredibly strong in the math. Like, they might look at a situation and say, okay, I think I'm supposed to take the aggressive option here 75% of the time and the, the passive one 25% of the time. And maybe the passive one is folding and the aggressive one is raising. And... um and then they like roll the dice, so to speak. They randomize in some way, and they're like, "Okay, I, I rolled like the the aggressive one, so like I'm supposed to raise." Uh, but then like some of the great players can just like look at the person and be like, mm, "I know I'm supposed to raise, but like this guy has it, so like I'm just gonna fold." Um, and I think that there there's always going to be that element in live poker. I don't know if that will survive forever in online poker the way that it used to. Like it used to be able to like actually pin a read on someone online with like a high degree of effectiveness. But as it becomes more math based, I think that just becomes really hard. Well, one of the reasons I ask is, um, have you been following the the Phil Galfon PLO challenge? <laughs> yeah, yeah, bananas. So you know what he's he said is that he was trying to execute an equilibrium strategy and maybe suffering. And he went back to his more philosophical approach or whatever it was he was doing to read hands. And all of a sudden he's winning again. Well, it's all math. Yes. But what's, what's going on there in your opinion? Well, I mean, I, I would like parse into or like try to read between the lines of that quote. And I don't know that quote specifically, but um, the, what, what I would suggest from that is that often players like do a lot of work in the uh sort of in a tank like on their own side like with their own training teams or their own plan to like try to create uh and explore um equilibrium strat like an equilibrium strategy that uh you know does a lot of what the computer suggests but a lot of things that are like not very intuitive to people and uh it actually is like really 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 difficult to to do because the degree of complexity you get into starts to like quickly outstrip 
uh, a person's ability to to like make good choices in the moment. So like I'll give you an example of what I mean. Like there probably is an, an equilibrium strategy that is like a robust mix of like limping and raising preflop. There's uh, one guy who actually like uh, last year in the World Series like maybe like came close to the final table or maybe final table like. Uh, I forget what his screen name was, but his he was actually famous for having a strategy where he limped 100% of hands, or like 100% of the hands he played. Like his his VPIP whenever he VPIP'd was like a limp, and yet he was like a really big winning player because like he had a strategy that he deeply understood that was surrounding this. Um, so I think a lot of times a player like Fogafon might be like, okay, I did a bunch of work to try to like come up with a more. Uh, like a, a more accurate equilibrium strategy than the one that's kind of like I have been comfortable playing. And then it turns out that it was just like still like a ways over my head and I wasn't really ready to deal with these situations. Like if I actually do limp with this range and then he raises from that amount, like I don't have a good plan for it. And, um, you know, I might find myself being like pretty confused and lost in those spots. So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of how I would read it, which is like, probably phil has like a lot of ideas that have served him very well in the past and he's like well maybe i'll just try doing those things that i know are good or like i'm confident are good and and then he's seen some success with it but also variance is is crazy like they're playing heads up plo like it's possible that phil's old strategy was fantastic and he just was getting like super run batted but like um it's the the truth is somewhere in between like it's kind of it's always going to be a little bit gray for sure uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, it again, it relates to this, is you said in your book that language really matters to you. It seems to me that what's separating some of the good players from the bad players is knowing why they're doing something from the solver rather than just mimicking it, and that you were very good at explaining the whys. So I'm wondering if you could comment on the, the role of language and looking philosophically at the game as, as a poker writer yourself. Yeah. So like, I think like the best studying that I've seen done ever is when they'll look at the computer and rather than try to uh, just memorize what the computer is saying, they'll be like, why does the computer want us to bluff off here with pocket deuces and pocket threes on this ace king queen board? Right? Like it says these are pure bluffs. Like I don't get it. And trying to think about the reasons that those hands might be better than, like, let's say, 7-8 suited with a backdoor flush draw or something like that. And you start to – or, like, you know, king-jack where you have, like, a pair and a gutter. And the the reasons that you can start to come up with are interesting. You might say, like, okay, well, actually, if I have pocket deuces, um, my opponent is more likely to have those hands like king-jack or king-10 that might fold to a bunch of action uh, if I go super nuts here. Also, like if I spike a deuce or a tray and make a set on a turn or river, like those outs are insanely deceptive and like super valuable. Or if someone is like sandbagging me with ace queen or ace king right now, like they'll never know what hit them. Um, and so you start to like con- like construct these narratives about like why the computer might want to do a certain thing. So I think like the best players in the world, both they because because you, you kind of need that like the why part of it because you'll never be able to memorize all of the. Uh, scenarios like the computer will tell you one thing if the board is let's say like jack you know uh eight five and like a totally different thing if it's jack eight four and it's like well how am i supposed to remember like what i'm supposed to do in every possible situation instead you try to find these patterns where you know that like okay the computer likes it when you have unblockers 
like when you when you don't block the things that you are trying to get him to fold, uh, the computer likes having like super high value deceptive outs. You know, it doesn't like, you know, if you like have it likes if you have sets on flush boards, like it still likes being aggressive with them. Like you just start to learn things like that over time and then try to figure out why it does, why it likes those things. Now, sometimes it it like is totally hard to understand. Like I saw a hand recently where it was like an ace 10 three board and it like loved being aggressive with jacks and like hated being aggressive with queens, but also loved being aggressive with kings. And it was like, what's wrong with queens? <laughs> like, why, <laughs> why are these ones the ones you like to hate being aggressive with? And so I think like trying to puzzle through those things and understand on a deeper level what the computer's talking about is a critical part of like being a great advanced poker player now, because um, you kind of have to. Uh, you're not going to be prepared for every situation specifically. You're not going to know like, oh, I have the middle bottom of my range and the board came out these three specific cards and the positions are this and this and this. And I know that the computer wants me to be, to be aggressive, you know, 90% here. It's going to be more like, hmm, in this type of situation, what does the computer think is good and why? And then you can kind of like sort out from there. And at that point, it doesn't get too different from just like the way poker has been play, pay, uh, played in the past. For sure. A couple, just a couple more things on easy game. Yeah. One of the things you wrote that was interesting um, that's been useful for a lot of people is that you thought you could be looser than you could um, theoretically. In, in real time, you could be looser than you should theoretically be able to be if you can sort of walk and chew gum through this one. Do you think that's still true or are, are people playing relatively tough and, and that advisement is, is maybe questionable? Well, it was always like based on the concept of dynamics. So like, uh, I think an example that I might give in the book is like, if you sat down and you were playing at rail heaven against like Phil Ivy, uh, you probably want to play very tightly because you're not going to like squeeze out a bunch of advantage against Phil. Um, if you're playing at a low stakes home game where everyone is like making lots of mistakes in every pot, then you might want to play more loosely than advised because you're, uh, or then sort of than the computer might tell you because uh, of all the mistakes that people are making and you kind of profit more per hand. Um, there's, it's a very complex question to say like how loose you should or shouldn't play because um, the computer, like a Nash chart or something like that is, is basically trying to tell you like what is the unbeatable strategy, not what is the maximized value strategy. And so um, you might say like, okay, in a vacuum, nine, eight offsuit on the button is a fold if there's any, if there's like a limp in front of you. Because the computer would say like, if somebody limped in front of you, they're like, you know, entering the pot. So therefore like their range should be like relatively good and like nine, eight off is kind of garbage and all these things. But in reality, nine, eight offsuit um the value of it is just going to be playing a pot in position against somebody who is going to make a ton of mistakes. Like that person's limping range is not what the computer thinks it should be, if that makes sense. And their decisions post-flop are likely to be very poor. So I think the the sort of idea behind what I was getting at before is like, think about where your advantages come from. If your advantages are going to come from like post-flop decision-making, then you want to see as many flops as you can. 
um, against like a super strong player, like you might not have that much of an advantage in post-flop decision-making. So maybe against a strong player, your advantage is I'm going to be closer to balance than they are. Cause if you're both trying to balance, that's usually kind of where you have to go. But if you're up against somebody who's weak, then yeah, I'd say like that part of the game really hasn't changed. Exploiting like the exploitative part of weak players is still what it always was. It's just that the good players are stronger. And so you'll get hammered a little bit more by them so in that sense, you probably do have to be a little bit tighter than you used to be because the good players are like a little bit sharper uh, or maybe even a lot sharper. But still, if you're playing at a soft live game or something like that, I would say I would still be trying to like see as many flops as I can and take advantage of weaker players. Mm. One of the most interesting chapters, and there's a lot of things in your book that really an- ended up anticipating what people think about poker now is the was the range switch chapter. That was sort of enigmatic for a lot of people. Is is that idea uh, still applicable given uh, balanced ranges? Or what do you think of that chapter looking back? Well, there's, I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of concepts that are, um, I was like kind of like grasping in the dark, trying to like figure out a way to explain things that were kind of like on the next level of what, um, of where poker was going, but people hadn't like really understood it. Maybe like I hadn't totally understood it yet either. And so like, I think, um, like, I think looking back, there's, uh, there's probably a lot of stuff in there that could use like to be edited, updated, etc. Um, as far as range switching, like, I think like conceptually, there was a lot of emphasis placed on like, de- like deceptiveness. Like how do I, um, how do I make myself difficult to read? How do I make myself uh, hard to play against? Um, I think uh, I think as we've gotten more in towards like a balance oriented uh, stuff, we start to discover that like a lot of that stuff just exists within balance on its own. Like if you are playing very balanced, like it is very difficult to play against you. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like it's, I would say there's probably like range switching and many other things in that book are probably like, concepts that if I was going to re uh, rewrite the whole thing would probably get like swallowed into like more fundamental central concepts, if that makes any sense. That makes a lot of sense. Well, it's a beautiful poker book and people should still read it, especially down at the low stakes where it, it's still 2011. Um, let's uh, close by hearing what Andrew Seidman likes to, to read about or, or think about in poker. Do you follow anything? Are there any celebrities vlogs books writers anything you like in poker right now well i mean the first thing that i that i would always just throw a shout out to is uh my friend uh dan smith and his charity drive um it's called doubleupdrive.com um and uh they do like amazing stuff to like matching drives so they'll like match millions of dollars i think he's raised like 15 million dollars for a charity in the last few years uh, so like I always stay in touch with Dan about that because um, I think it's really awesome. Um, as far as like I mean I I would say like I I'm always hearing I, I got rid of Twitter I used to be like big Twitter person and then eventually I realized I was just like wasting my life on Twitter. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Good advice. I, uh, I still like I'm part of a bunch of like poker chat groups so like I'm still like uh, like in regular like poker strategy conversations and things like that with amazing players. So I would say I probably do more of like one-on-one conversations with people, but that was honestly how I think I've been for a long time. Like I'm, 
I'm good friends in real life with Johnny Vibes and Kirstie Arnett uh, and Andrew Marino, who's like their little family organization. And so I love those people. Um, and so I enjoy like following their Instagrams and that stuff to see how they're doing. And I've enjoyed watching people like like Johnny getting into like spats with Doug Polk and stuff like that. It's like kind of fun to <laughs> enjoy. Um, but uh, but yeah, I would say like uh, I watch I watch all the stuff on Poker Go. I um, I was looking forward to the World Series of Poker this year. I'm not very confident it's going to happen. You know, I was looking forward to the Bay 101 Shooting Star, which got they chopped it like nine ways because someone was already getting sick. So I didn't play it because um, I was too afraid of the virus. But uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to following and playing more as soon as this whole craziness cools down. Well, that's good to hear. And uh, apparently you can still find Andrew Seidman at the tables if you if you want to take a shot at him. Well, not for the moment, but when we get all, everything back on track. Any any last comments for the listeners? This is a strategy podcast. People People are interested in you. Yeah, I mean, I would say so. Like, I'm reminded of I had a friend uh, like network me into a buddy of his who was like aspiring to be a professional poker player, and he called me and asked for my take on you know becoming a pro, and I uh, kind of like gave it, I gave it a pretty harsh. Um, he was kind of expecting me to just be like, yeah, like you sit down, you play poker, you make a ton of money. It's great. Um, and that, that's, that's not a, that's not what I told him. I think that um, like what's important to understand for your own poker career is just like what, what really motivates you and what does success really look like. And um, not that many people get to be um, like an Ike Haxton who are the sort of, this like mix of like incredible math genius with like incredibly unflappable personality who like doesn't really tilt very much. It's like very uh, focused on like optimization, et cetera. But there's like tons of ways that poker can be great. Like if you love poker and, and your idea of a great time is to go spend the day in the casino and like play poker, then like you could totally be a pro poker player and play like, you know, just grind out like mid, even maybe like mid high games um and have a have a good chance of success if your only you know aspiration is to become like one of the best in the world like that's you know go play chess and try to beat magnus carlson like it's the same basic deal um but i think uh i think on the whole like i think ch uh, poker is an amazing game and and uh even though it's getting harder to beat like you know high stakes games for a bunch of money uh it's still like fascinating puzzle and I, I still encourage people to play and and learn about it it's pretty awesome pretty awesome thing for my life and um uh, yeah i'll always play poker uh good to hear and on behalf of everyone who's benefited from your your book and other things uh thank you and thanks for coming on today uh take care and peace and thanks also to you our listeners without you this would indeed be a futile exercise so we appreciate you listening, and we would also appreciate you sharing the show link with others. If you follow Chris or the Poker Zoo uh, Twitter feed, we post a link each time a new episode comes out. You can also subscribe via Apple Podcasts or any of the Android podcast aggregators that are available. Make sure to check out Scientific Poker Strategy persuadio.nl up in the top right menu choice you'll see a link to that page and how to purchase all the details available there 
with that, we will see you next time. Thanks a lot. It's the